This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. From Cold War constructions of Judeo-Christianity to the threat of cultural Marxism, U.S. political culture has long obsessed over imagined political meanings of Jewishness. We'll discuss how Euro-Christian ideas about Jews have helped to constitute the American nation-state, consolidate the capitalist ruling class at home and abroad, and fuel right-wing anti-systemic movements. Um, As you can see from my bio, I am on the coordinating committee of Jewish Voice for Peace in Chicago, the advisory advisory board of Speakers Bureau for Jews Against Anti-Muslim Racism, and I'm a founding member of Tzedek Chicago, an anti-Zionist pro-social justice synagogue in Chicago. Um, A lot of people take credit for that, not just me. (laughs) Um, I come to this topic from my own experience as an African-American convert to Judaism, a daughter of the Great Migration, and of the over-romanticized Black Jewish Alliance. And as an advocate for Palestinian rights, who has frequently been accused of anti-Semitism and of being a fake Jew. I've also heard anger from African-Americans who see the focus on anti-Semitism as yet another ruse for white Americans to avoid addressing systemic anti-black racism. In the contemporary US, where white Jewish Americans have the same access to healthcare, education, financial success, and political power as their non-Jewish counterparts, is anti-Semitism even a meaningful concept? Or have these ever-resilient Euro-Christian anti-Semitic tropes of the weak, untrustworthy, and insidious Jew been recycled into new and unacknowledged forms? And finally, what role does the fight against anti-Semitism play in our ongoing fight against Zionism and other forms of racism? So here to help us dig into these questions, we have two brilliant speakers, Jonah Ben Abraham and Benjamin Balthazar. Um, Jonah is a socialist activist and a member of the Tempest Collective based in Columbus, Ohio. His work on Jewish politics, Zionism, and the fight against anti-Semitism can be found in Tempest, Truth Out, Rampant, New Politics, and more. So thank you very much, Jonah, for joining us. Our second speaker is Benjamin Balthazar, who is an associate professor of multi-ethnic U.S. literature at Indiana University in South Bend and the author of Anti-Imperialist Modernism and Dedication. His writing has appeared in Jacobin, Boston Review, Spectre, and elsewhere. His book project, Citizens of the Whole World on the Anti-Zionist Politics of the U.S. Jewish Left, is under contract with Verso. So let's welcome our speakers, and we'll be starting with Jonah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to my co-panelists. I'm really excited for this discussion. Thank you all for being here. Thanks to Haymarket for uh, hosting this space, too. Yeah, I'm actually, actually going to take this off. Um, thanks to Haymarket for hosting this space. It's not often that we get a room uh, on the left to have a you know a full-throated conversation about Jewish liberation. So I am excited to do that. 
Um, so my goal with the, with the first half of our presentation is to uh, provide some theoretical tools to address the problems that come up in movements which have to tackle the role of anti-Semitism and sort of the big system, you know, US white supremacy, uh, imperialism, capitalism, and so on. Um, chief among these problems, uh, as Leslie alluded to uh, in, um, in the intro, is uh, sort of what is an existential question. Um, is the state hostile to Jewish existence such that a fight against anti-Semitism has a basis for solidarity with other fights against oppression? Okay, I see this as the really key question. Oh. Yeah, better? Ooh, okay, great, thanks. Um, yeah, is, is anti-Semitism a problem of structural state-sponsored oppression or something of a marginal inconvenience disowned by the state, which mostly targets already powerful white people anyway. Uh, leftists in this country come down on both sides of this question. Uh, on the one hand, there are the, the materialists who look at all the usual metrics of racial oppression in this country, things like you know, resource distribution, education, healthcare, police brutality, and conclude that since World War II, anti-Semitism has been a, a dead letter. Um, it may be revived intermittently from the margins by acts of spectacular violence, but it lacks any actual material basis to impact Jewish people's lives on a mass scale. And then on the other side, we have the idealists who analyze political discourse in this country and say, what are you talking about? Uh, Anti-Semitism is clearly alive and well, not just on the right, but on the left as well. And the problem that I see with both of these arguments is that they think about oppression as something which is binary and unidimensional uh, rather than multifaceted and complex, dare I say, intersectional. Uh, both perspectives implicitly accept a binary within which Jews of European descent are either victims of oppression or white people. But here's the first tool I'll offer. While Christian hegemony often appears like a sort of addendum to white supremacy, given that in today's political landscape, racialization has so profoundly shaped the marginalization of religious minorities, they were in fact designed as distinct legal systems and therefore realized domination and marginalization through different means and institutions. So in the case of anti-Semitism, we can look at the origin of these dual systems and see that the oppression of Jews was always accomplished through the framework of Christian hegemony, not of white supremacy. When both were being established in North American colonies, uh, Jews of European descent were never subject to anti-miscegenation laws, for example, nor did they have access to resources and opportunities granted or denied based on a certain blood quantum or a one-drop rule. Rather, Jews had their rights stripped from them under the same rationales and oftentimes the same pieces of legislation um, as other religious minorities, you know, not just non-Christians, but also Quakers, Catholics, Lutherans even. Um, the consequences of Christian hegemony may have overlapped to some extent with the consequences of white supremacy, right? Just as at, you know, at the height of anti-Semitism in this country, um, you know, during the, the 1920s and 30s, both uh, white Jews and people of color were subject to white terrorist violence and banned from white-owned bars, restaurants, and, and so on. But the legal regimes and systems of control that produce these effects are distinct. Okay, and this means that even as the use of racial language for Jews has ebbed and flowed over the centuries, the fact of Christian domination built into this, built into the legal, political, and cultural foundations of this country has continued to have consequences from Jewish people, regardless of where that discourse is. Now, the second tool that I want to offer um, is an understanding of philo-Semitism. And to develop it, I want to return to this existential question I raised at the beginning. Is the state hostile to Jewish existence such that a fight against anti-Semitism has a basis for solidarity with other fights against oppression? 
Well, if we were to ask the state, they would say, of course not. Right? We're on the side of the Jews uh, in the fight against anti-Semitism, and we demonstrate that by occupying black and Muslim communities and sending billions of dollars of aid to Israel. Right? If we were to ask ruling class Jews, they would say, of course not. The state is on our side in the fight against anti-Semitism, and they show that by occupying black and Muslim communities and sending billions of dollars of aid to Israel. And unfortunately, if we were to ask the movements that a fight against anti-Semitism would be in solidarity with, many of them would say, of course not. The state is on their side, and that's why they occupy our communities and send billions of dollars of aid to Israel. This attitude of the state, which we call philo-Semitism, emerged in the lead-up to World War II as a strategy for winning over the support of the U.S. public for entry into the war. Even though FDR himself was an anti-Semite, who spread the myth that German Jews were disguising themselves as Holocaust refugees to spy for Hitler, he recognized how powerful it could be to justify the war not as a matter of supporting allies in, in their inter-imperial rivalries, but rather as a matter of protecting Jews from Nazi barbarism. To this end, he represses anti-Semitic street movements, he hires clergy as military chaplains, he wages a, a propaganda war in support of the so-called Jewish, uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, supposedly counterposed to totalitarianism. The embrace of philo-Semitism was so strong after the war that as a bipartisan coalition of anti-Semitic politicians was passing immigration bills aimed at curbing, uh, curbing quote, Jewish interests, and, and they were allying with the anti-Semitic terrorists and the Ustashi, they did so under the banner of the Judeo-Christian tradition. When the McCarthyites were murdering the Rosenbergs in an anti-Semitic show trial and targeting Jews at overwhelmingly disproportionate rates in HUAC hearings, they recruited the support of the American Jewish Committee because the McCarthyites, too, were acting within the Judeo-Christian tradition. Right? Today, one of the most fervent supporters of worldwide neo-Nazi movements is the State of Israel. Um, for years before Russians, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Israel was sending arms to the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Um, the government has recently come out in support of Croat nationalists in disenfranchising Jews and GRT people in Bosnia. And members of the Israeli right are widely on record uh, you know, spreading anti-Semitic Soros conspiracy theories and supporting Viktor Orban's anti-Semitic government in Hungary. All this they do, allegedly, in the interests of the Jewish community. Philo-Semitism was never a material reality, but a political strategy. A strategy remarkable for how very little it had to do with Jewish people whatsoever. The actual of interest in, of Jews in their struggle to survive anti-Semitism was nowhere to be seen in any of these examples of philo-Semitic policy that I just talked about. But philo-Semitism isn't about real Jewish people. Rather, it's about manufacturing consent for state violence by constructing a fake entity called the Jews onto which actions are projected. For real Jewish people, results may vary. Right? So on the one hand, when FDR justified intervention in the war in Europe with philo-Semitism, it caused a mass anti-Semitic backlash because Nazis in this country blamed Jewish people for bringing the United States to the brink of war. Um, but then on the other, when philo-Semitism was used to justify McCarthyism, this created opportunities for ruling class Jewish communal leaders to be proximate to state power, which are still open to them today. Now, of course, these opportunities are a double-edged sword, right? They, uh, they create additional structural incentives for the exclusion of Jews of color, queer Jews, and other Jews at the margins from Jewish communities. The point isn't that philo-Semitism is good or bad for, for Jews per se. It is, however, the reason why so many participants in movements for social justice see the fight against anti-Semitism as outside the scope of their work. When both ruling class Jewish institutions 
and the capitalist state promote a political strategy that hinges on a perceived alliance between these two groups, it is unsurprising that liberatory movements have been, since the adoption of this strategy, less than hospi hospitable to the seeds of Jewish resistance against anti-Jewish oppression. But it's also disastrous. Whether it's liberal politicos taking part in the Crown Heights pogrom, or the Women's March controversy, or the incessant derailing of Palestine solidarity activism by accusations of anti-Semitism, the left's failure to see through the political strategy of philo-Semitism has resulted more than a few times in the discrediting of the left and the weakening of our movements. And of course, in the final instance, the people who are harmed by, uh, by who are harmed the most by philo-Semitism are Jews themselves. Because what is needed to overthrow anti-Jewish oppression is precisely the broad anti-racist working-class revolution that the left is advocating. And the prospects that such a revolution would deal adequately with the question of Jewish liberation are currently slim. And that's on philo-Semitism. The last tool I want to offer has to do with the ways in which philo-Semitism has shaped both the actual exercise of anti-Jewish oppression in this country, as well as our consciousness of it. The fact that Jewish institutions like the ADL and the AJC, once tasked with leading the fight against anti-Jewish oppression, have become so complicit in the state's strategy of philo-Semitism that they are incapable of playing any liberatory role whatsoever, has profoundly degraded the level of, political, of, of public political consciousness around anti-Semitism. At the same time, the success of philo-Semitism among an anti-Semitic ruling class has necessitated a laundering of anti-Semitism through sort of colorblind or post-racial lens, analogous to the laundering of anti-blackness after the civil rights movement. So here's the tool. The keystone of anti-Semitic ideology in this country is assimilationism, not exterminationism. The state has convinced people, including many Jews, that it is anti-Semitic to resent the existence of Jewish people for their ethnicity, their physiology, even within limits, their, identif their identification as Jews, but that it is reasonable, even progressive, to resent Jewish difference. And this is how, in the absence of a genuine movement for Jewish liberation to unearth it, the vast majority of anti-Semitism in the United States remains covert. Now, the reason for this is, is embedded in history I've already discussed. Um, in a blatant effort to manufacture consent for its attacks on Jewish people in the 1950s, the McCarthyite establishment embraced anti-communist Jewish communal institutions as allies. Whereas before the war, the Bolshevism of the Judeo-Bolshevik was inseparable from her Jewishness, right, from her Yiddishkeit. Uh, after the war, efforts were made to distinguish between good Jews from Jewish communists. Now, to be clear, the impact was the same, right? The victims of McCarthyism were no less overwhelmingly Jewish than the victims of the First Red Scare. But the alleged ideological justification changed. The problem was no longer that Jews were irredeemably, biologically driven toward communism and thus warranted extermination. It was that many Jews, given the option of embracing Western Christian political traditions or remaining in darkness with their Judeo-Bolshevism, had chosen the latter. You know, in this frame, Judeo-Christians can stay, or Judeo-Bolsheviks have earned their fate, and this program was embraced not only by the anti-Semitic right, but by liberals and the, ruling, and the ruling class representatives of the Jewish community as well. One consequence of the, of the cult of Holocaust memory is that the anti-Semitism inherent to this kind of position has been erased. Anti-Semitism gets defined as what the Nazis did. And this has allowed non-exterminationist anti-Semitism to become widespread without feeling threatening to the US's philo-Semitic self-image. 
This is the kind of anti-Semitism that is hegemonic on the right today. Most proto-fascists don't want to start rounding up Jews into camps. Some do, but most just want to round up globalists. Cultural Marxists, pedophile elites, George Soros. Are those political designators Jewish coded? Yes, of course they are, right? But pointing that out doesn't lend any weight to the claim of anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism which targets Jewish actions rather than Jewish existence has been deemed kosher. The problem isn't Jews. The problem is the Jews that do Jewish coded things. But anti-Semitism isn't simply uh, a right-wing political plank. It's a, it's, a, it's a function of Christian hegemony. It's a structural underpinning of all of U.S. political culture and political economy. And we see this particularly sharply in the way that society as a whole interacts with Haredi Jews. So, for example, the New York suburbs, where many Haredim have settled in the last several decades, trend towards the political center and have largely voted in line with the national popular vote in the last several elections. But political positions and rhetoric, which, if applied to more secular assimilated Jewish communities, would be wholly unacceptable for their anti-Semitism, are commonplace in mainstream politics across both capitalist parties there. Last year, Orange County was forced to settle a lawsuit in which they defended for four years their right to deny building permits to Jewish developers with the clear goal of preventing more Haredim from moving into town. Jackson, New Jersey was forced to settle a similar lawsuit the year before, and currently Toms River, New Jersey is still in federal court over yet more discriminatory zoning requirements aimed to prevent Haredi people from moving there. The anti-Haredi political groups responsible are, they, are clear that they're not anti-Semitic, right? And in fact, they welcome Jews to their communities uh, and include in their ranks a number of assimilated secular Jews. They just don't want more Haredi because they spread disease, because they abuse their wives and daughters, because they swindle and take advantage of the town government and the non-Haredi locals. You know, all the things that Nazis said about Jews at large in the 1930s and continue to say about Muslims today. To be clear, there are genuinely regressive norms and practices among Haredi communities around which these campaigns garner support, but overwhelmingly, the campaigns are not aimed at ending bad practices, but at building Haredi-free communities. Now, obviously, these are the most extreme kinds of assimilationist anti-Semitism, which result immediately in discriminatory legislation and extra-state violence. But assimilationism is everywhere. It's why so much of Jewish humor in pop culture consists of mocking stereotypically Jewish traits. A century ago, we called this Jewish minstrelsy. It's why among the most enlightened liberals for whom anti-Semitism is nonsensical and evil, it's still kosher to express, express frustration at Jewish clannishness or pushiness or cheapness. And it's why left-wing political parties around the world who would never go near anti-Semitism have nevertheless taken an interest in banning kosher slaughter and criminalizing circumcision. When the U.S. imperial machine produces so much death, it's easy to write off these concerns as trivial, but they're not the substance of anti-Semitic domination. They are the mechanisms by which it reproduces itself. And as we stare down the growing threat of fascism in this country, which will come for Jews whether we're ready for it or not, it is imperative for all of our liberatory prospects that we unlearn the muck of assimilation and philo-Semitism, and that we turn toward a vision of collective liberation, which includes an existential critique of anti-Jewish oppression. Thank you. I'm going to hand it over to Benjamin. Uh, thank you, Jonah. That was great. Uh, thank you, Leslie, for your kind introduction. Um, <clears throat> reminding me to go to, back to Temple. Um, anyways, uh, so I'm going to continue wearing my mask for uh, the 
talk, so if you want to see my shining punim, uh, we can talk outside. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, basically, uh, the premise of my talk is fairly straightforward, that the symbol of the Jew um, has not disappeared with the Jewish assimilation or the founding of a nation in terms of the mobilization for American and Western imperialism and the capitalist interest of the capitalist ruling class, but it has certainly changed in the last 50 to 70 years. I think that change uh, is very important and worth discussing. Uh, I want to start off with a kind of um, intentional provocation. I see the persecution uh, of Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party in England and momentum movement as a kind of 21st century postmodern Dreyfus affair. And when I say postmodern, I don't mean in the sort of colloquial sense that it's weird, groovy, or avant-garde. I mean that it is a subject without a reference, right? So Corbin, of course, is not actually Jewish, and yet all the sort of meanings of the Dreyfus affair came to um, coalesce around him and his campaign. Um, so first I want to talk a little about what the Dreyfus affair was and why it's important. Um, so Alfred Dreyfus was uh, a Jewish army officer in France, and one of the first Jewish army officers to actually make it into the French military leadership in the late uh, 19th century, and was falsely accused of treason um, by the military uh, spying for Germany. What's important about the Dreyfus affair is not the fate of Alfred Dreyfus, who was eventually pardoned, but how it coalesced the interests of the right and left. So anti-Semitism, of course, has been a part of European culture for quite some time. But uh, what was important about the Dreyfus affair is that suddenly anti-Semitism became a way of mobilizing political discourse. So it actually was the first time that the right and the left in Europe uh, organized around defending or attacking Dreyfus and therefore defending and attacking uh, Jews. Um, so the right mobilized around uh, attacking Dreyfus, around the idea that he was a traitor, organized pogroms in France, and the right today, in the 19th century, we recognize well today. It was the clericals, it was the right-wing nationalists, it was right-wing populists, it was the military, right? And anti-Semitism became a way for these groups which don't necessarily have anything in common, right? So a right-wing populist does not necessarily have anything in common with a church leader, but anti-Semitism gave them a way to create a coalition to recognize their collective interests, right? So as Hannah Arendt talks about, you know, anti-Semitism might be part of the sort of crudities of European life, but it is only in moments of political upsurge or when it becomes politically useful that anti-Semitism concretizes in terms of actual political projects to organize either the right or the left, right? And so, uh, so the right organized around uh, the attack on Dreyfus, uh, the idea that there is a Jewish fifth column in France that the state is being attacked. But what's actually probably more interesting is that this is the first time in European history that the left mobilized around defending Dreyfus, so the Dreyfusards, right? Or, um, and uh, it took them a while. So actually it was um, a letter by uh, uh, Emile Zola that really sort of inspired the left to actually take notice of the Dreyfus trial. Uh, for a while, basically, there was really no kind of political organizing on the left. But once the left got involved in defending Dreyfus, uh, the socialist movement, uh, whole organizations around defending human rights and articulating human rights, and articulating a kind of secular humanist citizenship began to be organized, right? And so this is the first time in European history that anti-Semitism becomes an organizing principle around the right and the left, right? And so, and you can look at sort of the first half of the 20th century in Europe and the US, and the political lines around anti-Semitism remain fairly stable. So basically defending Jews against attacks of anti-Semitism become a mark of being a socialist. Of course, Lenin and the Bolshevik Revolution 
uh, made def uh, uh, attacking anti-Semitism a key part of the revolutionary goals. Uh, and of course, the right, of, uh, as we know today, organizes around anti-Semitism uh, in fairly similar constituencies and in similar terms. But what's interesting about the Corbin affair, uh, you know, flash 120 years into the future, is that the terms of this debate are entirely flipped, right? So you have the right, which declares itself as the defender of the Jews, right, and the defender of the Jewish state, and the left, which traditionally has been the force against racism and against anti-Semitism, suddenly the target of, of uh, claims that they are anti-Semitic. And I think it's actually no overstatement to suggest the campaign against Jeremy Corbyn singularly derailed the most progressive leader that England could have had in the last hundred years. By the time that the affair was over, over half, uh, I think it was about 60%, 55, 60% of people in England uh, and the UK thought that uh, Jeremy Corbyn's failure to contain anti-Semitism of the Labour Party made him unfit to be the leader of, uh, of the country. And so there was no other single issue that derailed his campaign more effectively. Um, and this was true both in the Jewish community, and I, uh, but largely this campaign was run not by the Jewish community, which actually is fairly small in England and not as politically outsized as it is in the United States, but it was primarily run by the British media, which is not run by Jews, um, and by Tories and conservatives in the Labour Party. And it was really a panic. I mean, it's kind of hard to remember how bananas it was. Uh, so uh, James cleverly claimed that Jews will leave England if Corbyn was elected. I remember reading a piece in the foreword that said, uh, sitting next to Corbyn in the train made me wonder what my grandmother would say to Hitler. And I was just, you know, uh, and, um, uh, probably most bizarre uh, in terms of the effect on the Labour Party has led to mass expulsions, not only of the left, but also mass expulsions of Jewish leftists from the Labour Party. So uh, Leah Levine, uh, Tony Greenstein, prominent Labour activists who were expelled from the Labour Party on claims that they are anti-Semites. And their only claim that these Jewish activists being anti-Semites is that they were anti-Zionists. Um, but I think the impact uh, of the uh, campaign against Corbyn, in terms of how it uh, conceptualizes Jews and conceptualizes Jewish identity, go beyond the fact that this is simply hypocritical, right? So of course, um, the Labour Party is probably actually, even though, yes, there were some anti-Semites in the Labour Party, the Labour Party has hundreds of thousands of members, uh, but the Labour Party actually according to polls, uh, is probably one of the least anti-Semitic organizations in England. And the Tories are one of the most anti-Semitic organizations in England. Yeah, the Tories have gotten an entire pass, whereas the Labour Party uh, uh, has been pilloried on this subject. But I think the implications of this campaign are worth spending some time thinking about how the sort of philo-Semitic defense of the Jews is actually a form of anti-Semitism itself. Uh, so the first thing I think that's important to suggest is that what this suggests is that Jews are actually an enemy of democracy, right? So if the Labour Party and Momentum was the most democratic populist electoral movement in England in the last 50 years, and the image of the Jew is mobilized, basically to suggest that this movement is anti-Semitic, a casual observer might suggest that Jews themselves, therefore, are enemies of democracy, and to be a Democrat is to be an anti-Semite by definition, right? And so uh, this suggests on some level that Jews in the anti-Semitic uh, trope are basically a clannish, uh, all-powerful group that essentially runs society for its own affairs. And if you think about it, this campaign successfully, again, derailed the most progressive member of the Labour Party in 50 years. 
Uh, the other thing, of course, it does as well is create uh, uh, a kind of binary between good Jews and bad Jews, right? So the actual uh, victims of this anti uh, sort of claims of anti-Semitism uh, was not only Jeremy Corbyn himself, but also, of course, uh, were Jewish left activists in the Labor Party, right? So you suddenly, if you were a Jewish left activist in the Labor Party, you were far more visible than even your Gentile cousins, right? So, so on some level, what this does is not only create this idea that Jews are enemies of democracy, but also increases Jewish visibility in a really dramatic way. Uh, actually, a comrade was telling me recently uh, he's been in Palestine solidarity movements in England for quite some time and never felt any threat as a Jew from these movements. But suddenly in England now, he feels that he is hyper-visible, right? So Jews are seen as this all-powerful force, and he's actually expecting that this will create more of a backlash than any kind of pro-Palestinian sentiment one could imagine. Um, so the other uh, example I'd like to talk about, in addition to Jeremy Corbyn, is a strange figure of Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, who I think functions in a similar kind of way to reorganize the idea of Jewishness in defense of European and Western imperialism. Um, I was actually very interested in Zelensky when he was first elected, um, so obviously a Jewish leader uh, of a country with a long history of anti-Semitism uh, was more than an um, uh, uh, just a point of casual interest, but also Zelensky was liberal. Um, you know, so I watched his show in Russian, um, and it's actually very charming. If you've ever seen it? Uh, it's a, a, a yeah, it's a very funny show. Um, and uh, you know, I was very interested that this Jewish liberal was elected in a country with a long history of a far right. Um, and you know, his his uh, his message or his um, uh, program. Uh, was uh, twofold. One, it was basically to end the kind of uh, far-right ethno-nationalism that came to rise after the Maidan, so the banning of the Russian language, etc. Uh, but also to end the war in the Donbass um, with uh, Russia uh, in the 2015-2016. And um, this was incredibly uh, popular in Ukraine. So he won something like 70% of the vote, was an incredibly popular figure initially. Uh, and what was interesting is that while Zelensky was elected, uh, uh, on this liberal platform, uh, he was really pilloried by uh, the Western media. So the American media really did not like him very much. They called him feckless. They called him uh, somebody who was in over his head, somebody who was appeasing Russia, um, and uh, pretty much referred to him kind of on the same terms uh, that uh, uh, Zelensky refers to himself early episodes of his show. He was kind of a shamil, right? He was kind of a loser. And that was his characterization in the media. Uh, until the invasion. Um, and so when the invasion of Russia happens, uh, suddenly Zelensky is transformed into the sort of ubermensch, right? So there's uh, images of him uh, as Captain America. Um, there's a, uh, a meme that you may have seen uh, that was uh, published by a Zionist organization called Jubilong, which asked, what kind of Jew are you? And it was a picture of Zelensky in a flak jacket um, and army uniform. On one side, a picture of Bernie Sanders on the other, and a famous image of the mittens, suggesting that basically there are good Jews and there are bad Jews. And Bernie Sanders in a cup full of mittens is a bad Jew. Uh, Zelensky in a flak jacket is a good Jew. Uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, the infamous editor of The Atlantic, went on to say that this is the way that Jews will gain acceptance in the West by defeating Americans' enemies, right? Um, and so, and this is not to make a comment on, uh, obviously, Zelensky's task of defending Ukraine. Obviously, he's in a very complicated situation 
situation. This is more about the discourse of Jews and Jewishness and how it works in concert with the American empire and how the idea of defending Jews has become a way for the empire to both uh, legitimate and uh, consolidate its interests. Uh, perhaps the most interesting uh, phrase about Zelensky that I heard, it was in Time magazine, and it said that the war had transformed Zelensky from Charlie Chaplin to Winston Churchill. And I think that that takes uh, a little bit of unpacking. Obviously, Charlie, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin, uh, who actually uh, once told Einstein that he was, was of Jewish descent, uh, although whether he was of Jewish descent or not, he was frequently interpreted as being a Jew, especially by the far right. And Hannah Arendt uh, famously wrote about Charlie Chaplin as being his figure of the tramp, as being the sort of summation of Yiddish theater, right? And so uh, Chaplin, and it's particularly his figure of the tramp, was seen basically as a kind of embodiment of the, kind of the Jewish Lemiel, right? The sort of Jewish loser, uh, and done lovingly, of course, by Chaplin. And Winston Churchill, uh, of course, was not only a flaming anti-Semite, uh, but also Western chauvinist, an Anglo-Western chauvinist. So, so this metaphor of Zelensky transforming from the Schlemiel, this loser, this person in over his head, this person who cannot defend American interests, when he's working in the interests of peace uh, or uh, secular anti-ethno-nationalism, uh, when Russia invades and he's defending his country, suddenly he's literally baptized by fire, right? He's turned into an Anglo. Uh, and this is a transformation, you could say, of the good Jew, bad Jew dialectic in service of American empire, right? So you have, uh, in the Corbin campaign, the idea of defending Jewish interests to derail the left, right? To be used as a club against the left. And of course, you see this in the US all the time, right? So uh, the charge of anti-Semitism is used against leftists all over the place, whereas figures like Trump, et cetera, are often given a pass by the media. Um, but in terms of international politics, this figure of the good Jew, or as what is sometimes referred to as the muscular militarist new Jew, is a figure that is used to legitimate US empire, right? So it is a better story for American empire to say that we are there in Ukraine to defend the Jews, defend Jewish interests, and have this Jewish hero who is helping us out, right? And that we're helping out, uh, then to suggest somehow that uh, the defense of Ukraine uh, is in alignment with Western imperial interests, however legitimate the uh, Ukrainian's defense of their country may be. And so this binary, this sort of redefinition of Jewishness in the 21st century, um, I think we have to see this as a new form, uh, as Jonah suggests, a form of philo-Semitism or, or as a form of anti-Semitism, right? So, and so the image of the Jew or the symbol of the Jew still remains this potent force in Western imaginary. It has actually nothing to do with Jews at all, any more than the ideas about Dreyfus had to do with the actual army officer, Alfred Dreyfus, who by all accounts was a fairly boring and normal person. Um, so it's just sort of the funny part of that entire story. He was like the least exceptional person you could possibly <laughs> imagine. Um, the most like ordinary of ordinary, boring, he's like a, a military officer, like boring dude. Uh, but he became the symbol around which uh, the right and left coalesced on their ideas of Jews and Jewishness and how their incorporation or exclusion from society are ways through which we can articulate left and right projects. And so the American empire and uh, the, I would say, European imperialism still requires this figure of the Jew to mobilize their interests, consolidate their interests, and legitimate their interests 
uh, regardless of how Jews are actually understood or understand themselves. And of course, this is also in the context of the rise of the far right, right? So I've mostly been talking about essentially liberal empires, right? But this is also in, in the context of the rise of the far right, and it should come as no surprise that the defenders of the Jew, right? So Boris Johnson, who posed himself as the defenders of the Jew against this horrible anti-Semite, Jeremy Corbyn, Boris Johnson is buddy-buddy with Viktor Orban, right? So, and this is just should not be read as inconsistent or as hypocrisy, but entirely consistent, right? Because the mobilization of New Jew in, in defense of world empire uh, is actually part of a larger anti-Semitic project, right? And in terms of West strategy, um, we can talk about that, obviously. Um, yeah, uh, uh, this is an entirely discursive formation, and in some places actually impacts Jews Maturely, in other places, it may not impact actual Jews at all. But as my friend was saying uh, in England, ironically, this defense of the Jews uh, in uh, the attack against Corbyn and momentum is literally the first time in his life he's actually felt afraid to be Jewish in England. And David Graeber said something very similar uh, uh, right before his death in an Open Democracy article. And so I think in some ways, the new form of anti-Semitism, particularly as it is... Uh, uh, formulated by liberal empires is actually ironically in, in name of the defense of the Jew. And this is what makes it so bizarre and ironic and difficult to unpack, especially when you have still classic anti-Semites um, on the mar literally on the march in the United States and around the world. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.